Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. We talk to the best speakers from around the world to bring you some of the most groundbreaking ideas. The internet was invented by English computer scientist Sir Tim Berners-Lee at CERN, or the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Switzerland, but it was commercialized in America. Today, we're going to understand the change at our doorsteps that will impact computing, impact society and all our lives. It's the answer to the question, how could the internet change and what what will this change mean for our assets, finance, security, society? We're reading a fantastic new book, Web3, charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. My guest, TEDx Talk, Blockchain is Eating Wall Street, has been viewed over 800,000 times. He's an entrepreneur, the managing director of the Digital Assets Group at Nine Point Partners. That's one of Canada's leading investment firms. They have more than $8 billion in assets under management. And he is the author of a new book. He's been on a whirlwind 13-state tour. It helps us understand one of the biggest headwinds, I think, that we need to get our minds around, the next possible chapter in the evolution of the Internet. The book is titled Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. You can get it over at Kinokunia. It is already a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Author Alex Tapscott is my guest this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Fantastic to speak with you. Your book is fascinating, and it looks deeply at six transformations that Web3's development, you say, will bring to business and our world. Can we start with an overview? What about the Internet do we need to reimagine when we talk about Web3? Well, thank you very much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. This is a very unique time in human history. Every once in a while, a new technology emerges that transforms the economy and the old order of human affairs in ways that are both profound and unexpected. And right now we're in this rare moment where there are not one but four or five potentially new technologies all emerging at once. The first of these is blockchain, the technology behind cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. But really blockchain is a medium for value that is going to transform finance, money and and business. Uh, We're seeing the rise of AI, artificial intelligence, which is reimagining all sorts of uh, different capabilities of computers, but also what people can do with these tools. We're seeing the rise of extended reality, which promises to take our internet, which is you know two-dimensional, we use a phone or a computer, and turn it into a spatial web. And now we're seeing the rise of the internet of things, connected devices that will be doing a lot more than monitoring our health or you know taking our temperature. It'll be devices that can do transactions and that can think. Um, we're in this moment right now where these different uh, technologies are converging together. And they're converging under this banner of Web3. And I think like all previous eras of the web, this next era um, that we're entering into will be defined by a number of technologies coming together and is going to be transformational for, for business and for society and culture and so much else. Unpack for us a little of what Web3 could look like. We, we hear so often this phrase of moving from the read-only web to the era where we're in, the read-write web, to what you describe in your book as the read-write-own web. Yeah, that's right. So in order to understand Web3, I think it's important to understand what's come before. And you just used some great terminology, which I do refer to in the book. I'll try and simplify it even further. Web1, the first era of the web, 
um, what we call the read web, but what I think a lot of people remember as the dot-com era was basically a way to consume uh, information on websites. So it was you know, fairly one-directional, kind of like a broadcast medium like radio or TV, but was nevertheless revolutionary because what it did is it democratized access to information uh, mm. for people who had an internet connection. So if you were in Singapore or Toronto where I live, you type in the same URL, you get the same information. Something like that had never happened before, and that was a big breakthrough. The second era of the web, the read-write web, um, was really defined not by information on websites, but by user-generated content. It was the era where people could not only go to the web to access information, but they could write to it. They could upload their own content. They could share their thoughts, their photos, their videos. They could find communities. They could collaborate online. And that took the web and turned it into a social medium or a medium for communication. And it created huge value and it connected tons of people to the internet. And it gave a platform for people to share their opinions. And it also created a lot of value. But most of that value was captured by the platforms themselves that harnessed this, this new asset class of data and used it to you know, monetize user engagement, whether that was through selling ads or, or selling products, right? And now we're entering this new era, Web3, the read-write-own web, where not only is the web a way to access content or, or upload your own, but it is a new uh, platform that allows us to own and control our own identities and data, be able to own and manage our own assets, and to be able, in a way, to be owners of the applications and services that we use. The Web3 model inverts ownership from the platform to the individual. And as a result, it's going to reshape everything. And in the book, what we do is we look at specifically six transformations, as you point out. What does this mean for assets? How is it going to impact the very nature of you know, value itself. What does it mean for individuals? How does it change the role of internet users, but also creators who rely on the web to uh, reach their fans? What does it mean for organizations? The corporation itself is an industrial age model that is going through a big breakthrough because of Web3. What does it mean for industries, from everything from financial services to physical infrastructure to gaming and entertainment? How is this going to impact um, our evolution um, as a species, you know, the metaverse and the move to a three-dimensional internet? And finally, what does it mean for, for civilization? How is it going to change the world? Uh, what does it mean for governments? Where is all this stuff going to get built? All of these are questions that I think a lot of people want to understand. And my hope is that the book acts as somewhat of a, a field guide for the Internet's next economic and cultural frontier. Are we at an inflection point or are we talking about change that's going to take 10 years, Alex? I think we're at a really interesting moment where all of these technologies that I started off by describing are all kind of hitting their stride at exactly the same moment. The foundational technology of Web3 is blockchain, blockchain technology. That's the technology that allows us to represent value and assets digitally and enables us to, to do economic transactions without intermediaries. And that's fundamentally the foundation of all of this. You know, that's actually the newest of the four big technologies that are emerging. I mean, blockchains emerged with Bitcoin, which was only about 13 years ago. And it, it's hitting uh, its stride, I think, at a very interesting moment. The other technologies are, are not overnight success stories. They're, in fact, decades in the making. You know, AI came about in the 1940s with Alan Turing, the inventor of the computer, who first, you know, put forth this, uh, this idea that, that computers could mimic human intelligence. Virtual reality is something that's been around for decades. Even connected devices and machines, of course, are something that we've known about for decades. But what's unique 
is that they're all hitting their, their stride at the exact same moment. In, um, in economic theory, there's this concept of like an S-curve, where basically for a period of time, there's, there's time elapsing, but there's not a lot of growth. But then all of a sudden, every moment of time and every dollar that goes in creates that much more economic input. And I think we're cre- on the very crest of that upward swing in the S-curve for every of these major technologies. And I, to my knowledge, I'm not aware of another time in history where such an event has occurred. I mean, it's some, it sounds like something that's that is going to be on all of us at the same time, the way you can't escape the internet. But we know that different regions have different regulations, the different currencies. Is this going to be something that is able to take off or do you think different regulations are going to have people at different stages of evolution of this Web3? I think there are a couple of different ways to answer that question. So the first is, um, where is all this stuff going to get built? In the introduction, you you said how the internet was commercialized in America, and that's true. But this time is very different. This next era of the web is emerging in a time when technology tools and capital and know-how and political will and R&D and research are all more distributed, more globalized than they ever have been. Silicon Valley was once called a tech Galapagos because of the unique blend of characteristics that led to a species that could survive there and nowhere else, you know, a special species of company that went on to dominate the first era of the web. Mm -hmm. And uh, this time is different. So I think that um, in a way, the Web3 era is the U.S. um, The U.S. is to lose. But I think that there are plenty of examples of places where uh, innovation is occurring, not least of which, by the way, is Singapore. Singapore has become um, the leading center in Asia um, and therefore arguably the entire world. Yeah, you talk about that in your book, right? That yeah, we talked about here, it yeah. at great length. Yeah, we, we, we actually um, talk about several companies and projects that have their headquarters in Singapore. And part of it is is the result of, I mean, Singapore is a financial center. It's an economic um, you know, nexus in the region. It is a, a country with great wealth and it ha- attracts you know, great people. So it has that going for it. But it also has, um, you know, the political will or at least an open mindedness to allow industry and for innovation to thrive. And I think that um, is something that puts it over the top. What what I've noticed really in in a lot of other parts of the world is there's often the political will, but not those other factors. Mm. And in other places, there are those other factors like in the U.S., but not the political will necessarily to um, make an effort for to make that country or that location uh, an area of innovation. So I do believe that uh, in a way there is, uh, you know, a, a battle whose fault lines or, or you know, um, the lines of the battle are, are basically between governments in terms of how how and what they will do to drive um, in, innovators to their country. I mean, even in the UK, the, the current prime minister has said that he wants to make the country the Web3 capital of the world. Um, and I find that very interesting and in stark contrast to what you see in the U.S. So I do think that there's differences in different countries. You do make a good point, though, about regulations themselves. Um, You know, I I spoke to a very smart person in the research for the book, Albert Wanger, who's uh, one of the founders of Union Square Ventures and and actually is one of the pioneers of, of Web3. And he said, you know, the first era of the web emerged in a time when there were regulatory tailwinds. I think that the 1980s and 1990s were a period when technology could do no wrong. Mm -hmm. And there was this real 
push to make um, the U.S. to make sure they got it right. And they introduced new laws like the Telecommunications Act that really set the groundwork for the industry to succeed. And now I think that there are regulatory or at least political um, headwinds rather than tailwinds. You know, the rise of, of ChatGPT and, and AI as an example, you would think would have been met with cheers um, as a sign of American ingenuity and innovation. But instead, the reaction from a lot of people in politics is to try and throttle it, to, to control it. When it comes to blockchain and digital assets, the U.S. has been a leader in financial services for a century and a half. And that's one of the big sort of levers it has in global power. And yet it wants to throttle this source of financial innovation with blockchain. So what's interesting is that the, 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 the attitudes towards technology and innovation in America have changed. And I think that the, uh, the opposite side, the yin to the yang of that is that in, in a lot of Asian markets and in, in Singapore, for example, mm-hmm. you're seeing the opposite. And, you know, maybe there's a big geopolitical story to be told there. I don't know. But all I'm saying is what I'm observing. And I think that in a way, um, while the regulatory um, uncertainty, I think, is putting a damper on um, on some innovation in certain areas, we're seeing quite the opposite in other parts of the world. Nowhere are we seeing more of a battle and confusion over what to do with technology, I think, than in the cryptocurrency space. Will Web3 require cryptocurrency? Well, absolutely. Um, the term cryptocurrency, I think, is a bit of a misnomer because cryptocurrency implies money, right? Currency, mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. those two things are usually interchangeable. But the reality is that you know most uh, digital assets, most tokens are not trying to be currencies. They're not trying to be money in the traditional sense. Um, the best way to think about tokens really is sort of as like containers for value. They're sort of a, a, a blank vessel that you can fill with anything of value or in the case of a token program. So if you think about a shipping container, what can you put in a shipping container? Well, you can put furniture, a car, you know, medical equipment, you can put food, you can put just about anything. And a token can be thought of the same way. A token is like a digital container that can contain money, but it can also contain stocks and bonds and other financial assets, real world assets like real estate, um, art and collectibles, IP, even votes in an election. Anything that requires scarcity to have value can be programmed into a token. And actually in the book, we describe our the token taxonomy where I try to show how there are at least 11 different types of tokens um, that exist today with currencies being just one of them. Another useful analogy is to think about websites. In the early days of the internet, a lot of people were talking about what you can do with a website. Well, you know, you can put sports scores and you can have a newspaper and you can do classifieds and you can put an encyclopedia and so on and so forth. And a lot of the examples were kind of stuff that we used to do in the old world, like in a newspaper and putting them on the internet. And, um, you know, at the time we could have said, here are all the things that we do with a website. The reality though, is that a website is a blank slate. It's a container. It's a container for information. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that a website is a container for information, Mm -hmm. a token is a container for value. And what that means is that digital assets um, can be uh, programmed to represent an infinite number of things of value in our world. So yes, to make a long story short, tokens, uh, as we call them, are foundational to Web3. And in fact, um, in the six transformations, that's transformation number one. You know, what does this mean for, for assets in the economy? And we spend a lot of time digging into that. So will some assets be more, will some digital tokens be more required than others? You know, you think of blockchain, you think of Ethereum. Will there be a hierarchy, a taxonomy of tokens? Well, there definitely is a taxonomy of tokens. And I think that um, some uh, tokens will survive and become immensely valuable. And many will not in the same way that 
during the dot-com era, some companies that went public during that era became immensely valuable as they sort of harnessed the power of the first era of the web, while a lot of others didn't work out, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's unique or different about it this time is that with Web3, there are these underlying protocols that you can actually own. You can be an owner of the internet itself. So Ethereum, for example, is not an application or a company in the sense, in the same way that say Amazon or Yahoo or AOL or one of the dot coms was, mm -hmm. it's actually internet infrastructure itself. And the more applications that get built on top of that network, the more valuable that protocol becomes. So if you believe, as I do, that Web3 is going to continue to drive new innovation, new applications, new users, then what that means is that value actually accrues to the underlying protocols themselves. Incidentally, Ethereum is what I would call a protocol token for Ether, the native token of the network, which is actually number two in the token taxonomy. Cryptocurrencies being number one, things like Bitcoin, protocol tokens number two, and so on and so forth. What will power Web3? I mean, blockchains need energy, right? So what's going to underpin this open source infrastructure of this permissionless blockchains ecosystem? Well, all of the technologies that are emerging today require vast amounts of energy and computational um, power to fulfill, right? So if we're talking about rendering virtual worlds where millions of people can gather all together, we need vast amounts of computing power. If we're talking about AI models being used, uh, being trained by thousands of companies and then being used by billions of people, mm -hmm. then we need to talk about huge computing power. And of course, as you point out, the blockchains themselves are networks that rely on infrastructure. Now, in the case of Bitcoin, um, it's a proof of work network, which without getting into too much detail, requires a lot more energy than most other networks. A network like Ethereum doesn't really use much more energy than your average you know, data center per computation. But still, if we expect more and more computations and transactions on these networks, then obviously we need more resources. So there are a couple solutions to that. Hmm. Number one is that we need to be able to harness as many chips and as much computing power as humanly possible. Fortunately, there's a whole subsector of Web3 that is emerging to address that. It's a subsector called decentralized physical infrastructure. And a lot of the most compelling projects are actually addressing some of these issues. So, for example, a project like the Render Network. The Render Network basically allows owners of GPUs or graphical processors to pool those assets into a user-owned cloud where in exchange for volunteering their computing power, they actually earn back money in exchange. So if you're sitting at home and your computer overnight is not doing anything, but it's got a high-powered GPU chip in it, why not plug it into this decentralized cloud? The render network is being used by, you know, Hollywood film studios, NF, uh, Web3 artists, sorry, Gene Roddenberry Jr., the, the son of the creator of Star Trek. All these people are users of the render network. Another really good example is um, HiveMapper. HiveMapper is a project that is basically taking the same concept but applying it to mapping data. So right now, all the mapping data in the world that state houses and insurance companies and um, other organizations buy comes from Google because Google owns all the mapping data. Well, HiveMapper allows individuals to put a dash cam on their car and as they're going about their day, starts mapping data. And so it doesn't matter how many Google cars are on the road, there's always going to be more cars that are not Google cars. And in only a year, 
year, hive mappers mapped 10% of the world's surface or 5 million kilometers of roadways. And so that creates a new user-owned infrastructure. You know, you think about the importance of mapping data in, in everyday life, it's enormously important. So whether it's computing power or um, sources of energy or mapping data, um, there's these new decentralized user-owned models that are harnessing the power of Web3 to address these very issues. What is the potential for Web3's impact on our world, societies? Will we see even more potential for targeted messaging? I mean, your book takes us to an internal audit of Facebook, which admits that the algorithms they were using were driving uh, people towards self-reinforcing chambers of extremism. So will this be heightened with Web3? Will we see more potential for extremism? It's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that I have a satisfying answer for you. And I think it really speaks to the question of what are, what are the downsides of technology? Because, you know, in this conversation so far, I've talked about what could go right with Web3. But I think it's also important to talk about what could go wrong. With, with every new technology that comes along, there are lots of positives. But there are also typically a few negatives or ex- externalities, as they're called in, in, in economics. You know, in the case of Web1, Web1 democratized information. Um, it made it easy for everyone to access information. It also democratized disinformation and made it easy to, to access information that was wrong. There was no gatekeeper. Good thing, because it's democratized, but also that means there's no check on authenticity or accuracy. You know, in Web2, Web2 democratized publishing, and that's great because it gave everyone a voice, but it also democratized the publishing of hate speech and of all sorts of other vile uh, information, which maybe not illegal, but certainly extremely harmful to society as a whole. And in the case of social media companies, they actually used people's biases as a way to keep them in self-enforced echo chambers in order to uh, drive engagement and sell more ads. So with Web3, what are the issues that we're dealing with? Well, Web3 democratizes ownership. It gives us a way to express ownership for the first time of our digital selves and to be able to move value peer-to-peer. It also democratizes in a way, the ability to start a new organization. You don't, doesn't matter if you're not in Delaware, you can't access a lawyer to start a C-Corp. You can start an internet native organization, a DAO, and you can raise capital and you can hire people and you can engage in some business activity. And that's a really important thing. But what Web3 also does is it democratizes the ability to launch a scam, basically like a financial, um, you know, a dishonest financial scheme. And unfortunately, that's been uh, one of the negative externalities of Web3 is that in the, by the same breath that you can launch a token representing a new network that could be worth billions, you can just as easily launch a token that actually doesn't purport to do what it says it does and ends up being backed by crooks and could end up you know, causing people a lot of harm. So that's not a reason why it's a bad idea. <laughs> that's an implementation challenge that needs to be overcome. In the case of uh, financial scams, there are solutions. It's called the law. It was illegal before to scam people, and it's illegal now to scam people. But we need to update the way we think about them to address these technology challenges. Alex, you started writing about Bitcoin around 2014. Nine Point, the investment firm where you are managing director of the Digital Assets Group, has launched the world's first carbon-neutral Bitcoin ETF which has reached over $400 million in assets under management. What are your views on the product, the Spot Bitcoin ETF? Do you think that the U.S.'s SEC will greenlight such a product? And do you think it's inevitable that we're going to see more institutional players like pension funds entering the Bitcoin market? I've written publicly that I think it's a matter 
of uh, when, not if. I am highly confident that a spot Bitcoin ETF will get approved in less than a month. And I think that the market is uh, telling us that in a couple of really important ways. Obviously, number one, the price has gone up a lot. Uh, Bitcoin's over $40,000 from starting the year under $20,000. And a lot of the recent move is regarding speculation about a Bitcoin ETF. But a better uh, metric that people should be looking at is actually a product that already exists called the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Um, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has traded historically, at least for the past year, at a substantial discount to its fair market value. And one of the reasons is that people never really expected it to get converted into an ETF. ETFs, for people who are not familiar, typically trade at or around their fair market value for reasons I won't get into. But what we've seen over the last couple of months is that the discount on the Grayscale Trust has gone from 50% to about 8% suggesting that at people expect that fund will be able to convert into an ETF. If that fund is able to convert, that means that BlackRock, Fidelity, Bitwise, and all the other guys are all going to be in the same boat. So to me, that's a question that it's not answered yet, but I have a high degree of confidence. There are a couple of other you know, interesting follow-on questions um, to ask yourselves. What's the impact going to be? Is there actually going to be a ton of demand or is this going to be a buy the rumors, sell the news kind of event where you know all the speculation and all the rhetoric leading up to it is very exciting, but actually on the day of, maybe there isn't all that much demand. My view is that this is going to be a watershed moment for Bitcoin and for the broader digital asset space. It is going to add Bitcoin to the firmament of all financial assets, and it's going to lead to Bitcoin being added to retirement savings accounts, investment accounts, institutional accounts across the United States. I think it's very hard to quantify how big that can be, but I would suggest that it's going to be quite substantial. Um, there's another thing that people aren't talking about as much, and I think it's worth bringing up on the show, which is that there are institutional investors who will buy the Bitcoin ETF. But there's another thing that's happened that will make it easier for corporations to hold Bitcoin. And that's the Accounting Standards Board in the US, the FASB, has recently announced changes to the rules on how Bitcoin will get treated on financial statements. Up until now, companies have been treating Bitcoin as an intangible asset, sort of like goodwill. So what happens is when they buy it and it goes down, they have to mark the asset down. They have to impair it. But when it goes back up, they can't mark it back up. So if you're a corporation, why on earth would you ever hold something that can only be marked down in value? And that's why most big companies don't hold Bitcoin. The changes that have been made by the FASB say that actually now, if you own Bitcoin, you treat it like any other current asset, like, say, cash or stocks or something like that. What that means is if it goes down, you have to mark it down. But if it goes back up, you can mark to market. So all of a sudden, Bitcoin is no longer this weird sort of black sheep asset from an accounting standpoint. It's just yet another financial asset. And so there are lots of companies, you know, lots of companies may decide to hold Bitcoin as a as a part of their cash mix, right? But there are also a lot of businesses that need to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet just as a matter of business processes. Companies like PayPal, companies like Square, companies like Robinhood, companies like Tesla, you know, companies that um, where Bitcoin is part of their business model or where they accept it for payment, having the ability to hold Bitcoin and treat it like any other asset is a godsend. And I think that's going to create a whole new class of corporations that can own Bitcoin. I think that that is the thing more than anything that is not priced in at all. 
um, going into next year. Now, I will say that those rules take a place, take effect in 2025, so not next year. But if you think about how people try to price stuff into the market, in the lead up to that event, I expect a lot of people are going to start to pay attention to that. And I think that if the Bitcoin ETF was the big narrative, for 2024, perhaps surprisingly, accounting rule changes are going to be the big narrative for 2025. I've really loved this conversation, Alex. Thank you for being with us. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. He's the author of Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Keep reading. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you so much for joining me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.